My name is Elizabeth, and this is my podcast, Behind Their Eyes, where I talk about different serial killers, the crime that happened, and what could have brought them to these actions. Today's episode is going to be about Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, also famously known as the Toolbox Killers. For this episode, viewer discretion is advised. This episode contains descriptions of assault, rape, and torture. Please listen with caution. On the morning of November 1st, 1979, Hermosa Beach in Los Angeles woke up into an absolute horror. A body, stripped and abused, had been discovered in the front yard of a house by a normal jogger. This body was thrown into an ivy bush where it could be easily found. Because of the horrific nature and the horrific finding of this body, this was heavily publicized throughout all LA and Hermosa Beach County. Adding on to this horror, this body was discovered just after the Hillside Strangler of Los Angeles was arrested. Behind all the noise of the coverage throughout LA, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris were secretly laughing and smiling in the background. They loved the public news, and they loved the coverage and the attention they were receiving, although no one knew it was done. The police were stumped. They had absolutely no leads, and they had not connected the other bodies that were previously missing. To rewind, let's talk about Roy Norris and Lawrence Bittaker before they began their sadistic acts. Lawrence Bittaker was born on September 27, 1940. He was adopted and his father worked into the aircraft. Because of this, he moved around a lot. And he was also an outside and outcast. He never really fit in despite having gone to multiple schools. In 1957, it was discovered that he had a high IQ of 138, but he hated school, and at the time he was 17 and decided to drop out. He began an early life of crime. He started petty thefts to earn money, such as car break-ins. He looked up to different notorious killers. Those were his heroes. When he was also 17, he stole a car, and this was the first time he got arrested. But since it was his first time, they only let him spend two years in jail. And two years later, in 1959, when he was 19 years old, after he was released, he went to Oklahoma and he stole another car and then got arrested pretty soon after in Louisiana. For this crime, he spent only a year and was released in 1960. He survived after stealing cars and stealing anything he could find to earn money. In December of 1960, he got caught stealing and was charged for robbery. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison. From this arrest, he went into psychological evaluation. They thought he was intelligent, manipulative, and maybe psychotic, and he had no remorse for any of the crimes he had done. At this point, we can see that stealing and petty crimes were the beginning of his life, which would later lead to worse crimes. In 1962, just two years later, he was evaluated again and he was found borderline psychotic. He was found to not have been able to control his urges and he was, quote, basically paranoid, end quote. And he was said to be manipulative and had a lot of pent up hostility. 
though he never received psychiatric treatment, and he was let out of jail early in 1963. At this point, he was only 23 years old. Out of the 15-year sentence he received, he only served two years. In 1964, he was picked up for violating terms of parole and suspicions of robbery. At this point, two years later, while he was arrested, he was evaluated again and was diagnosed as borderline psychosis. This time, he gave, they gave him medication. He bragged about stealing and all the petty thefts he did, and to them, this made him feel important because previously, as a child, his heroes were notorious killers and criminals. In 1966, after his diagnosis, he was let out once more, and at this point, he was 26 years old. Despite his condition, he was paroled again. This was his fifth arrest, at, and this was for a hit-and-run and petty theft. For this arrest, he was sentenced to five years, but he only served three. And just three years later, he was let out in April of 1970. A year later, in 1971, he was arrested again, but this time he was only sentenced for a year. Two years later, in 1974, he stole some meat from a grocery store. And when the clerk went outside to confront him, Bittaker took out a knife and he stabbed him near to the heart. The same year he was arrested for assault and intent to commit murder, and he was interviewed by forensic psychologist Dr. Ronald Mark. It was confirmed that Bittaker was a sociopath and that he faked all his previous psychotic behavior. He had no empathy. The same year in 1974, he was sent to California's men's colony. Unfortunately, the same time that Lawrence Bittaker was sent to the California men's colony, Roy Norris was also there at the same time, and soon their fate would meet. To begin with Norris, he was born in 1948. His parents married young because she was pregnant. This was an unplanned pregnancy. They claimed that they stayed together for him, but their household was not a very happy home. There was a lot of emotional abuse, and they kept abandoning him into foster care for months, or for years, or weeks, or days. And then suddenly, out of the blue, they would come and take him home. This caused a lot of emotional distress. They began close with him, only for them to abandon him once more. In one of his foster homes, he was sexually abused by some of the parents. By 16 years old, he was already having sadistic fantasies. Norris stole his father's car, and he attempted to commit suicide in the woods by blowing straight air into his arteries. His parents found out, and it gave him a lot of emotional abuse for this. Norris was struggling, and by 17 years old, he dropped out of school and joined the Navy in 1965. In 1969, he was deployed to Vietnam. When they came back to San Diego, his comrades took note that he seemed different and unhinged and more aggressive. He was arrested for attempting to rape a woman. One year after, he tried to break into another woman's home. The military psychologist said that he had severe schizoid personality and they let him go. After this loss of his job, he went completely downhill and he felt like he had nothing solid in his life. 
In May 1970, he followed a woman in San Diego Uni, and he grabbed a rock and he smashed her head from behind. This would be his first vicious crime. He slammed her head on the ground and she had severe head trauma from it. She lived throughout the traumatic experience though. And he was charged with sexual assault. They went to a hospital for sex offenders. He spent five years here with psychiatric, psychiatric treatment. And in 1975, they decided that he wasn't a threat anymore and released him. At 27, year old, 27 years old, just three months later, he tried picking up a woman and he tried to grab her by the scarf from behind. He was, success, he was successful and he took her into the woods and raped her, but she got away and she called the police, although she couldn't identify him. One month later, by some luck, she spotted Norris. She spotted his motorcycle and his license plate, and she ran straight to the police. Because of this, he was arrested, and this was when he was sent to California Men's Colony, where Lawrence was. At, at the time before they met, they hung out in different groups. They knew of each other, but they never really directly talked to each other. Norris took hint of Bitteker, and he noticed how popular and smart he was. In 1978, in the California men's colony, Bittaker, who was 38 at this point, saved Norris's life at least twice during their time. Eventually, they became friends and were able to bond over their horrible obsessions. Soon after their very first meet, they became very close. In prison, they dreamt and they spoke about killing multiple young girls. At least seven, they decided, all from different ages ranging from 13 years old to 19 years old, the teenage years. It was discovered later that the reason they loved teenage girls was because they were easier to control. Their fear of the older woman affected them in this planning because of their childhoods. In 1978, Bitteker was released, and just three months later, in January of 1979, Norris was released. Once Bitteker was released, he said, he laid on the low. He moved in with his mother, and he didn't want to detect any suspicion. Previously, the two of them had planned to meet up after each of their release. In November of 1978, after he was released, he bought a 1977 GMS cargo van. He named it Murder Mac. In February of 1979, after Norris was released, Bittaker sent him a letter. They decided to go around driving and hang out at beaches, watching women, and say anything that we wanted to do to them. They were very comfortable with each other, and they felt like they didn't have to hide anything. Eventually, the urges became too much, and they wanted to go out and act out. This was when Bittaker got the white van, and they got the supplies that they needed. They created a wood bed in the back of the van, and they got a bunch of tools that they also stored in the van. They were figuring out their plan on how they were going to coax people, and they figured that they could that they could just use hitchhikers. For months, they worked on approaching their 
perfecting their approach. They made themselves seem friendly, and they wanted to give themselves a good reputation. So they picked up many, many hitchhikers with absolutely no problem just to build up a reputation. On June 24, 1979, they committed their very first heinous act. Her name was Cindy Schaefer, and she was 16 years old. After hours and hours of searching on the beach, they ended up in a neighborhood. She was walking to her grandmother's house, and they saw her as she stooped down to pick up a cat. They saw she was innocent, and they loved that. Bittaker approached her to offer her a ride, but when she refused, Norris jumped out of the sliding door and grabbed her, immediately covering her mouth so no one could hear her scream. As they pulled her into the van, Bittaker turned up the music all the way while Norris taped her mouth and, and binded her by the hands and feet. At the highway, Cindy completely stopped struggling. She had no emotional reaction and she dissociated herself. Then they reached a secluded area called Fire Road that previously Norris has found for them. Once they got there, Bittaker and Norris both smoked and they asked Cindy questions about her life, about her family, about school. Cindy was very unresponsive and she was detached. This was feeding into her fantasy. At this point, they began groping her, and Bittaker took a walk for an hour while Norris raped her. After, Norris took a walk while Bittaker did the same. But an argument came onto them. One of them changed their mind. During their confessions, they each blamed on each other. Norris said Bittaker was the one who changed his mind and Bittaker said Norris was the one who changed his mind about killing her. Finally, they decided to kill her, but they failed many times. They used a, hang a wire hanger to strangle her and it wasn't working. The hanger broke her skin in a and her body was twitching After they were able to kill her, they wrapped her body in a shower curtain and they drove to a spot over a cliff and they dumped it. This was their first successful kill and unfortunately afterwards they celebrated. Just a few weeks after their first successful kill, on July 8th of 1979, they decided to take Andrea Hall, who was just 18 years old. They saw her walking. She was asking for a ride. But unfortunately for them, a car pulled up and took her instead. They really desired her though, and so they followed the car to wherever her destination would go because they figured she would ask for another ride. And they were right. So they picked her up for the second ride. And as she got in, she did not see Norris because he was hidden under the bed. They decided just to use Lawrence to make her feel safe and comfortable. Lawrence told her to go grab a drink from the cooler in the back seat, and as she did, Nurse jumped out and grabbed her arm. He was able to pull Andrea into the back seat, and he twisted her arm. 
She was screaming and screaming, and so Lawrence had to turn up the music. He bounded her arms and her legs and taped her mouth. They followed the same routine and went back to firewood, and they dragged her into their woods to each rape her. Lawrence went to the store to go get some more supplies while Bittaker was left alone torturing her. He used multiple of the tools they stored previously in the van. He wanted her to beg for her life because this gave him a feeling of dominance over her. He took many Polaroids of her and he kept them laughing and satisfied with what he did, satisfied with the fear on her face. Norris came back and he was anxious about being caught, so he told Bittaker to hurry it up. Bittaker took an ice pick in both ears and stabbed him. She didn't immediately die, so they strangled her with another wire hanger and this immediately killed her. They threw her body over a cliff after this. After Andrea Hall, they both decided they wanted to wait a little bit so they would not grow any suspicion. Luckily for them, no one was suspicious of them, and the missing girls were hardly reported. According to, to the police, missing teenage girls just seemed like runaways and troublemakers, so the cases weren't taken too seriously. They both had the Polaroids that were previously taken, but this could only do so much for their urges. Eventually, on September 3rd of 1979, they decided to take Leah Lamp, who was 13, and Jackie Gilman, who was 15 years old. Leah and Jackie were both sitting on the bus stop, and they were waiting for a bus ride, or anyone to take them, to the beach, who was just a few miles down. So they pulled up and offered a ride. Once they got in the van, Norris offered a joint and they were all smoking. But the girls noticed that the van wasn't really going the direction of the beach and that they might have passed it and they were going into a mountain area instead. They became worried and Norris said that they were just gonna look for a quiet spot to go smoke for a bit before he gave them to the beach. But the girls weren't, didn't become restless and they began to begin louder with shouts out of fear. They tried to pull the door. As they were shouting, Lawrence and Baker were yelling at them to calm down because the situation was getting out of control. Bittaker realized it was getting too out of control for him, for him and Norris, so he pulled over to the side on a tennis court. They got out and they both said that Jackie and they taped her mouth. As they were all struggling, one of them noticed that a tennis player was watching them. Bittaker smiled and said that she was just having a crazy trip on LSD. Whether the person believed them or not, they turned away and ran back to their game. After the person left, Bittaker and Norris continued to bind Jackie. They were also successful with taping Leah too and binding her. And they continued on their way. Once they reached Firewood Ward Road, they began their verbal torture. 
They tied Leah up to a tree and they told her that she was too fat to be attractive. So they started with Jackie. Bittaker raped Jackie and forced her to play along his fantasy. Norris brought out the tape recorder. Norris then sexually assaulted Jackie with some of the tools that they brought with. And he made her also play along to his fantasy. But this time, he made her pretend to be his cousin that he had fantasized for a while. After this, they tied both of the girls up and they slept in the van. For two whole days, the girls were kept alive, raped and tortured repeatedly, mostly with the wire hanger and pliers, but also with other tools that they had. And throughout this entire time, it was tape recorded too. Once they decided they were finished, Bittaker stabbed Jackie in the ears with the ice pick, but she didn't die immediately. They took turns strangling her at this point. Bittaker then decided to strangle Leah with the wire hanger as well. But while he was doing this, Norris hit her in the back of the head multiple times with a sledgehammer. They threw the bodies over a cliff. The high that did The high that they got from Leah and Jackie was incredible. The pictures and the recordings, the fear that they heard and that they saw, it all felt amazing. To have been able to dominate two girls at once made them feel powerful. It made them feel invincible and so dominant. But the pictures and recordings could only do so much. The media, on the other hand, was not covering any of the, anything, any of the bodies, any of the missing girls, nothing was being covered. And unfortunately, there are consequences to this, which is Bittaker and Norris's hunger for more. Bittaker especially was angry at this because, remember, as a child, his idols were outlaws and criminals and different killers. He claimed that he wanted to become bigger than Manson. So just a few months later, they decided to make their most horrendous crime yet. And it was planned. They planned to do it on October 31st, Halloween night. They wanted to grab as much attention as possible. So on October 31st, 1979, they took a girl to named Shirley Ledford, who was only 16 years old. As they were driving around the neighborhood, Bittaker actually recognized Ledford. He noticed that she was one of the workers who worked at a restaurant that he went to frequently on the weekends. So Norris pulled aside and Bittaker talked to her. They were friendly and it was good conversation, but his urges could only be held down for so long. He coaxed Shirley into asking her if she would like to hop in the van, but she denied. Norris and Bittaker felt powerful, and Bittaker could not hold down his urges. The thought of torturing someone who he knew especially and who was so young just made him feel incredibly dominant. He felt like a predator, 
and they felt like they could do anything that they wanted without getting caught. So he climbed to the back seat and he yanked her inside the van. He pounced on her and he bounded her with tape before she could scream or move. Norris then began driving away and as Bittaker was struggling in the back with Ledford, an idea was brought up. They both decided that they wanted Ledford to be assaulted while Norris was driving because it sounded exciting. They wanted all the high that they could get. Once this was decided, Bittaker got the tape recorder and he said that he wanted to make it special this time. He began to abuse Shirley and he hit her and he yelled at her for her to talk. He kept ordering her to speak into the recorder and she did, but she soon realized it's not really what he wanted. So she began to scream and this is when Bittaker finally became happy. She screamed and screamed as loud as she wanted because she knew he liked it. She thought that this would maybe save her life. But Bittaker only kept making her scream more. He kept hitting her harder and harder, wanting her to scream louder because he claimed he loved the sound of it. Then he began to rape her and he made her describe everything that was going on into the tape recorder. At this point in time, Norris was still driving. Bittaker eventually was not satisfied with her screaming. Her screaming kind of slowed down and he didn't like that at all. So he took out a pair of pliers from the toolbox that they kept. He waved them in Shirley's face and taunted her with them and said that if she doesn't scream, then he's gonna hurt her with them. So she screamed even louder and as loud as she could, she screamed, she shouted, and she pleaded. But he didn't hold up his end of the deal. And he placed them on her body, on her chest, and on her lower region, and he pinched them and twisted them as hard as he could to get as many screams as he could from her. Her screams were encouraging, not only to Bittaker, but to Norris, who was also driving. So Norris pulled over because he claimed that he wanted to turn. So he grabbed the sledgehammer as he went to the back and he began to smash it against her elbows as hard as he could. And he was counting that her elbows were smashed 25 times. He completely shattered her bone. Throughout all this, they kept sexually assaulting her and torturing her. All while the tape recorder was still going. They made her talk and they made her scream and cry. At one point she was barely conscious from all the pain, but they still wanted her to talk until they had her whimper how she wanted them to hit her more. They decided to kill her, so they took a wire hanger, wrapped it around her neck and twisted it, just like the other victims, until she died. Although this crime was super satisfactory to them, it still was not enough. They still weren't big. They were not noticeable. So they decided to go into Hermosa Beach and find a regular neighborhood. And they dumped her body into an ivy bush on someone's front lawn. This is when the next morning, 
Hermosa Beach in Los Angeles woke up to the absolute horror. The next morning was when the jogger found the body in the front lawn. Because of the horrific finding and nature of his body, it was heavily publicized throughout all LA and Hermosa Beach. The investigators, though, had no leads. The previous missing girls have still not been taken seriously, and because they were in different counties, they couldn't make any connections. Because of this, Norris and Bideker felt that they were unstoppable. They were loving, they were swimming in adoration at all the public's news that was about this. They felt so elite and dominant. Because of this, Norris felt very powerful and arrogant. Just three weeks after this murder and finding, and while the investigation was still very much ongoing, Norris decided to go brag to an old inmate friend named Jimmy Dalton. Norris and Bitteker used to be in the California men's colony with Jimmy Dalton, and Norris and Jimmy Dalton were friends. So Norris bragged to him in hopes that Dalton would praise him and be afraid at the same time because this gave Norris the satisfactory dominance that he was begging to look for. So he told Jimmy Dalton everything and in a lot of details too. But instead, instead of admiration and praise, Jimmy Dalton was scared. He also had some daughters and the thought of Norris and Bideker doing this, and the thought of his daughters and protecting them, scared him. He was disgusted and shocked. At first he thought he was lying until he saw all the publication of the body. So he went to his lawyer. And with his lawyer, they agreed to go to the LAPD to give this info and this tip. The LAPD couldn't do much because it wasn't really in their jurisdiction. So they went to Hermosa Beach District and their police was more responding. The Hermosa Beach police were able to match Dalton's story with the report made by Robin Robeck, who was a lady who made a report set a few months prior and claimed she was sexually assaulted by two men in a white van. At this time, she was able to get away, but she wasn't able to identify the men at the time. They called her back in and they showed her a few mugshots, two which were Bideker and Norris, and she immediately pointed them out. They had not really any concrete evidence, so the main detective on the case, Paul Bynum, went to the district attorney, Steve Kay, who already prosecuted Norris prior and they decided that they both needed to be cautious in the investigation because they didn't want to scare Norris and Bideker into running away if they were to find out they were being searched for. But once again, Norris was being careless and some police officers caught him selling weed on the streets. They rode to get Norris and they arrested him for a parole violation. They found out Bideker's location as well and they, and they arrested him for suspicion of kidnapping in the murder of Shirley Ledford. They brought him in for questioning, 
and both of them refused to talk. But eventually, after some holding off, after a few hours, Norris broke down. But instead of breaking down and necessarily confessing everything, he broke down and put the blame all on Bittaker. He claimed that he was an unwilling accomplice and that Bittaker made him do these things. He told the police how Bittaker saved his life a few times in prison and that he made him feel that he owed Bittaker these things. But eventually it was too much and he didn't want to do it anymore, but Bittaker still forced him to. But this was a confession as well. And because of this confession, they were both charged. Both men were charged with five counts of first-degree murder, along with kidnapping, robbery, and deviant sexual assault. Once they were charged, they each tried blaming each other. But after some investigation of the van and the places they lived in, they found all the hundreds of Polaroids in the tape recordings. Norris realized that he had to do more to escape the death penalty, so he showed the police officers the locations of the dead bodies to get away from the death penalty. They found all of them, except Cindy Schaefer and Andrea Hall, unfortunately were not found. Reluctantly, Detective K, who was on the case, gave Norris life with parole, but only parole if Norris was a was going to testi testify against Bittaker. Bittaker's attempt to escape the death row was to write a book called The Last Ride. And he did so in order to convince the jurors that Norris was actually the lead of everything. But this was a failed attempt and he was sentenced to death on March 24, 1981 with guilty of five counts of murder and 21 other crimes. As Bittaker waited for his death sentence in the prison he was located in, scarily enough, he hung out with three other notorious serial killers, Randy Kraft, who is also known as the Scorecard Killer, who raped and killed 16 young men, Douglas Clark, who is part of the Sunset Strip Killers, along with Caroline M. Bundy, and they killed prostitutes and kept the remains, and lastly, William Bonin, who was the free rate killer, he raped, tortured, and killed 21 teenage boys. In the end, for the both of them, they each died of natural causes, not having finished their sentences. Norris died at age 72 in the California Medical Facility, died of natural causes, and Bittaker died at age 79 at San Quintino's, waiting for his death penalty. justice was served. Both of the men are gone. Unfortunately for Cindy Schaefer and Andrea Hall, their families were not able to get the closure that they absolutely deserved. Personally, what fascinated me about this case was how many times this could be prevented. Both men prior to meeting each other were arrested numerous times, but each time they never fulfilled the full sentence, and they only served a very very small portion of it. If the justice system would have been correct, 
and would have let had them serve the full sentences, these horrendous crimes might not have occurred at all. To this present day, the recording of the horrible crime Shirley Ledford is used in FBI training. The audio is so horrible that they will not release it to the public, and they use it for FBI trainees to desensitize them to the real-world problems that they are about to endure. It's sad that these five girls had to go through this, and that they are no longer here. Personally, I pray that they are in heaven, and they are safe. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Toolbox Killers. Please stay safe and have a great day or night.